Maybe just to put out a little reminder again, we're going to be looking this morning at the teaching of Jesus about adultery and lust. Um, and as you probably know, Jesus' teaching about those things is quite blunt and direct. And so we're going to try and talk about those things quite openly and directly uh, this morning. Um, so it's maybe just to say, if you do have young kids who are running around when you're watching on a Sunday morning, uh, you may just want to be aware. Uh, there may be some interesting questions that arise uh, from from this morning's talk. Um, but let me maybe pray for us as we come uh, to God's word this morning. Um, so let's pray. Uh, Father, these are challenging things that we're coming to think about this morning. And so I want to pray you would give us courage uh, as we think about these things. I want to pray you would give us receptive hearts. Um, I want to pray that whatever might distract us from hearing your word this morning, uh, that you might blow those distractions away and help us to hear uh, what you want to say to us. Father, I want to pray that the defenses that we might put up against being challenged this morning, that you would break down those defenses. Uh, Father, we want to pray that the words of Jesus would resound in our, our hearts this morning and do their good work. Um, even if that is uncomfortable, uh, we want to pray that the words of Jesus would go deep and do their work in our lives. Um, and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So um, let me remind us kind of where we are. We are on the hillside with Jesus. Um, the disciples are there on the hillside and the crowd is there on the hillside. And so we want to say again this morning, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're really welcome here as we explore together what it means to follow Jesus. And if you're part of that wider crowd where you're you're not sure yet what you think of Jesus or you're intrigued by Jesus or you're curious about Jesus, then you're also really welcome. Um, and together we want to think about uh, the way of Jesus. What is the way of life uh, that Jesus is wanting to share with us and lead us into? Uh, and as we said at the beginning of our series, the way of Jesus is really challenging and difficult. Um, it's We take his yoke, which is a work instrument. We take up our cross as we follow Jesus. But the way of Jesus is also life-giving and it brings rest for our souls. And so I want to remind us of that again this morning. His words are challenging and difficult, but they also, as we trust them and as we walk in them, uh, they bring rest to the deepest parts of us, uh, to our souls. So, with that kind of scene in mind again, uh, let's read together. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Uh, we're just reading a few verses this morning, a little short section. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So, 
as I, as I warned us, they're kind of, they're blunt words, they're strong words, they're uncomfortable words, uh, from Jesus. Um, and once again, Jesus takes a command from the Old Testament. In this case, uh, it's the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And he says, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you, um, let's remind ourselves again, Jesus is not speaking against the Old Testament law. He hasn't come to abolish the law, uh, but to fulfill it. But he's speaking against the way the law has been abused and misused by the Pharisees. And so, again, I want to ask the question, how would the Pharisees have read this command? Do not commit adultery. Um, and I want to suggest, very, very similar to what we talked about last week, the Pharisees would have focused again on external behavior in a way which allowed them to draw again a big red line between the righteous on the one hand and the unrighteous on the other, and always drawn that line so that I am safely on the safe side of the righteous and the healthy, along with people like me. And then on the other side of the line are those people, which includes adulterers. Uh, And maybe we can broaden our discussion to also think about other kinds of sexual sin, those who do X and Y and Z. Um, The... This has remained kind of the, uh, from the time of Jesus, I think, the Pharisee way to talk about sexual sin. And there might be debate in different generations and at different times about what X, Y, and Z are, what exactly is included on that side of the line. But the basic approach stays the same. And the key dynamic, I think, especially in talking about sexual sin, is one of shame. Those people over there should be ashamed of themselves. Those people over there are depraved, are sick, are sexual deviants, or whatever. Um, And shame has been used as the main tool in order to to deal with these things. Uh, Maybe it helps to think about uh, one of the most famous novels ever written that you may have studied when you were in school, is The Scarlet Letter by by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Um, And it, of course, tells the story of a Puritan community in New England, in the early days of uh, uh, the United States. Um, and a young woman who was caught in adultery and uh, bore a child through that union and who was actually made in that very religious society to wear a big letter A on her clothing to say to everybody around her that she was an adulteress. So there's the big red line made really vivid. And that, that novel, that story in that novel was based on things that were really done in those kind of cultures. Uh, you put a big, bold red letter to mark out those people who are uh, those who have done those shameful things. I think that's a stark example of the Pharisee approach. Um, maybe just going to drop in a quick comment here, uh, which we don't have time to kind of think about, but I think one of the most interesting and kind of hypocritical things about our modern culture is our modern culture likes to think it has moved a million miles away from Puritan New England um, in our kind of progressive culture. But actually, I don't think a lot has changed. The, the list of things that go in as X, Y, and Z may have changed in our modern world, but the basic approach of there is a red line and I am on this side and those people are the ones who should be ashamed, I don't think has changed that much. Um, and I want to encourage you to think about that later on. What, what would our culture say? goes on that side of the line, and the definition might have changed. But the basic approach, I think, is still 
pharisaical. There's a new Phariseeism in our culture. Um, but I want to think for a moment about Jesus' time. So not thinking about our time just now, but about the time of Jesus. Um, how did people talk about adultery back then? Um, in the wider pagan culture of the time of Jesus, um, adultery was very much defined in a way that very much suited men. And that has been the case in most cultures in history. Um, but in the time of Jesus in the pagan world, um, you, you kind of have to pause to really believe that this, this was the case. But um, a married man who slept with a prostitute or slept with an unmarried single woman did not commit adultery. Adultery was really defined as a form of theft. And so it was only adultery if you slept with another man's wife because wives were essentially seen as the property of their husbands. So that's how adultery was defined in the pagan world. A married man could sleep with whoever he wanted as long as they were not already taken by another man. Step in the Pharisees. The Pharisees took a very different view to the pagan culture. Um, the, the Pharisees held the marriage vows in high regard. Um, and they, of course, said a married man should not have sex with anyone other than his wife. And so I wonder, can you see, even in terms of our red line, how the Pharisees were able to say they were much more moral and virtuous than those pagans over there with their terrible practices. But this is where it gets kind of interesting and disturbing. The Pharisees found a loophole in their approach to divorce. Now, we're going to be thinking a bit more about divorce next week, but we need to touch on it briefly here. Um, the Old Testament allowed for the possibility of divorce back in Deuteronomy 24. And so the Pharisees, as they tended to do, got into a big debate about, well, what are the conditions under which divorce might be okay? What are the clauses and subclauses that we can add to these laws? What was a sufficient reason for divorce, divorcing your wife? And we actually have documents from, uh, from Judaism at that time that tell us about this debate. And so one school said it was only allowed in really serious circumstances like infidelity, if, you're, if your wife had been unfaithful. Another school said it was okay to divorce your wife if your wife displeased you for any reason. And literally the examples that were given were if she burned your food or oversalted your food. One rabbi even taught, and the mind boggles, that if you no longer liked your wife's appearance and you saw another woman you preferred, it was permissible to divorce your wife and uh, trade her in, essentially, for a younger model. Um, I wonder, can you see what happened in the Pharisee way of thinking? They were able to feel superior to the, the sinful pagan culture out there. We would never do those disgusting things like go to prostitutes. And yet, in their hearts, they were really not that different in the way that they viewed women and the way that they viewed sex. Um, I wonder, can you see how that worked back then? Um, what does Jesus do with this command? So that's how the pagans and the Pharisees talked about those things. What does Jesus do with this command? Well, once again, he wants us to go beneath the surface and look at the heart. And Jesus says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Uh, maybe at first glance, actually, 
it seems like Jesus here, he doesn't talk immediately about the heart, but about the eyes, about what we look at. Um, but I think it's really important here to look closely at Jesus' words. The problem is not simply with what we see, because we can't always control what comes into our field of vision. We do have some choice over what we look at, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, but we can't, sometimes things come into our field of vision involuntarily as we go about our lives. Um, the problem is not just with what we see, or even just with finding someone attractive, which is an instinctive response. The problem, I want to suggest, is not with what we see, but with what is below that again. If we think of our iceberg again, like we did last week, there's adultery and sexual misbehavior on the surface. Below that, there's our looking, but below that is what goes on in the heart. There is lust. The problem is not with what we see, as people have often said, but with the second look or the lingering look. The, the, what Jesus is wanting to talk about is about intention, about the will, about the heart. Um, the, the literal translation of his words would be anyone who looks at a, looks at a woman with the purpose of lusting. It's with the intention of, of lusting. Maybe we could say it's not so much about what we look at, but about what we are looking for. That's the thing that Jesus wants to get at. Uh, Martin Luther uh, very famously and very memorably said, we can't prevent birds from flying over our heads, but we don't need to let them nest in our hair. <laughs> right? So it's talking about that choice to let something linger um, and pursuing it with our heart. Um, what kind of looking do you think is included in the challenge from Jesus here about looking lustfully? Um, and by the way, I do want to say that I, I think the words of Jesus need to be taken to heart by women as well as men. So I don't think any of us get off the hook here. Um, what kind of looking is included? Well, I think it definitely includes how we look at women or how we look at men as we go about our lives, as we walk down the street, as we're in our workplace, as we go about our lives, how we look uh, at those we see as we go about our lives. I think in this day and age, it also has to very much include our looking at our screens, whether that's looking at social media or looking at television or looking at films or looking at advertising or all kinds of things come into the challenge of our looking and the challenge of lust. So looking at our screens definitely come, comes into it. And of course, all engagement with pornography, which is a kind of looking that is only for the purpose of lust. And so, of course, any of our engagement with pornography um, come, comes in here. Um, and I even want to go further than that and say, I think also the world of fantasy and the imagination, which is maybe not a looking with our physical eyes, but looking at the images that we play on the projector screen in our own minds, our hearts, where we've stored up images and then can replay them uh, later. I think all of those kinds of looking come under the the spotlight of Jesus' words uh, in this passage. Um, maybe we want to ask immediately, why is this so serious? Why why would Jesus make such a big deal about our looking and about the things that we 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 think about in our hearts? Um, I want to suggest it's for similar reasons to what we talked about last week. Uh, Last week we asked, why is contempt 
such a serious thing that Jesus equates it to murder. Um, because when we spit on a person made in God's image and say, Raka, um, we, well, I've, I've already said it, we've spat on God's image whenever we do that. When we spit on another person, we spit on God's image. And there's something very similar, I think, in thinking about lust. Lust is so serious because when we lust after someone, we use a person made in God's image for our own selfish gratification. It's a similar, uh, similarly serious, weighty, grievous thing to show in contempt for another person. That's why it's so serious. Um, I wonder, would you agree with me? Most people today don't like the idea of handing out red letters and shaming people in that way. Uh, we don't want to be that kind of culture of shame. And, and maybe today, a lot of people assume that maybe the answer to escape from that is maybe to give up old-fashioned ideas about sin and purity and faithfulness and righteousness and just have a kind of sexual liberation where we can pursue our desires whatever way we wish. We don't really have time to kind of go into that in great detail, but I do want to drop in just this question, which is, do you think that that kind of liberation, that kind of opening up of let's get rid of the idea of sin, do you think it has led to freedom for people in our culture? Do you think it has led to a lot of joy for people in our culture? Or has it led to new kinds of enslavement and new kinds of addiction um, and new kinds of brokenness in our lives? Um, Jesus takes us, I think, in a very different direction. And it is, at first glance, really uncomfortable because I, I think it's this, that in a sense, Jesus hands out those red letters to all of us. <laughs> there's one for you. There's one for me. There's one for all of us. Every single one of us, if we're honest, has to say when we look at Jesus' words, I am an adulterer. I am an adulteress. I can't point the finger at anyone else. Once again, like last week, the line dividing good and evil cuts right through my heart and every single one of us stand convicted. Um, all of us come under this challenge. Um, and so maybe we want to ask um, urgently, <laughs> what should we do if we feel convicted by this, if we're aware that this is a problem in our looking and in our hearts? What should we do? And Jesus offers some very, well, I was going to say some very practical advice. We'll see in a moment. He offers some very blunt and very strange, maybe, advice. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. And he goes on to say, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Um, what do we do with these words of Jesus? Um, most people have agreed that they're not to be taken exactly literally. So most people have agreed that we're not to uh, literally gouge out our eyes and chop off our hands, by the way. I had a little bit of fun when I looked for images to put up here, but I've put one up that wasn't as disturbing as some of the ones that I found, uh, which you should be very glad about. Um, what, what do we do with these words? Most people have, have agreed that these words should be read as hyperbole. Um, I don't know if you remember that word from studying English. Um, hyperbole is a deliberate exaggeration to make a provocative point. And so under that view, um, 
Jesus is saying something like this. He's saying, do whatever it takes. Take drastic action. Even if it's costly, even if it hurts, do whatever it takes to guard your eyes and guard your heart uh, and uh, against the danger of lust. So let's think for a minute, uh, really practically, what might that mean if we were to think about doing whatever it takes and taking drastic action? Um, here's a few examples. It might, on a really simple level, mean putting protective software on your computer or your other devices that stops you looking at certain things or makes you accountable to other people. Actually, that one, I think, doesn't even count as particularly drastic action. And I think probably for many of us, that one should be a no-brainer in order to protect us against uh, some of the danger. Um, I remember when I, whenever I was younger, uh, this will age me, because this was in the days whenever you had to have a, a lead in order to get internet in your house. Uh, so Wi-Fi didn't exist yet. Um, uh, everything was through a cable. Um, and I remember when I was a young man and I was struggling with the temptations of the internet. I remember talking to an older Christian and I remember him saying to me, John Mark, if you're in the house by yourself and you feel tempted, take a pair of scissors and cut the lead. And you can worry tomorrow about buying a new one and it'll cost you a little bit in, in B&Q or wherever. Um, but it's worth it in order to guard your heart. Um, I never actually took that advice completely, literally, but I, I took the idea. He also said, uh, if you need to just get out of the house and go for a walk or go for a run, but get away from wherever is the place of danger for you. Um, it may mean that you have strict boundaries for yourself or your family around no TV or internet after a certain time in the evening or no screens in a room by yourself. Again, I think for a lot of families, that one should be a no-brainer. Um, it might mean if you're with your mates, now this is a difficult one, if you're with your mates, uh, let's assume you're in a culture where you're, you can spend time with your mates here, um, and they want to watch a movie, and you have seen the trailer for that movie, and you know immediately and instinctively it will not be good for you to watch that movie. There is a cost in speaking up and saying to your friends, you might be strong enough uh, to enjoy that without being tempted, but I'm, I know I'm not, and so I'm out. And that might be an example of doing whatever it takes, even if there's a cost. Um, it might mean rethinking your relationship with alcohol, because the Bible talks about how the two things are related. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, leads to making choices you wouldn't otherwise make. Um, a great example, I remember hearing a story uh, about a Christian speaker from uh, from Northern Ireland who used to do a lot of speaking at conferences and events in different places. And often whenever he travelled to speak, he'd be put up in a hotel or a guest house uh, of some kind. And he used, he used to have the habit of phoning ahead to the place where he was going to be staying and asking for the television to be removed from the room where he was going to be staying. Why? Because he knew that at the end of a long day of traveling or a long day of speaking and being with people and being tired and being drained and arriving in his room by himself far from his family, that was not the moment to try to fight the fight. And so he, he knew his own weakness and he did whatever it took in order to guard himself. I think that's a, a great example uh, of taking uh, drastic action. 
there's a few examples and you can maybe brainstorm a little bit this week, uh, some others. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that reading of the words of Jesus. Um, this is not something to play with. This can destroy your marriage. This can destroy your family. It can destroy your mental health. It can destroy very deeply your spiritual health. Um, we need to do whatever it takes and take, take action. But I also want to suggest there's a limit to that way of thinking. Maybe we need to ask this is where do we stop? We start taking drastic action to, to guard ourselves. Where do we stop? Do you get rid of the TV altogether? Well, maybe. Do you get rid of the internet altogether? Um, it can be quite hard to function in the modern world without uh, email and internet access of some kind, but maybe you can take that action. Do we avoid the company of women altogether or the company of men? Do we close our eyes? Do we stay in the house? Um, some cultures have tried covering women from head to toe uh, so that they are completely hidden. Is that a good solution? That's an example of taking drastic action of a kind. Is that a good solution? I think there's all kinds of reasons why it's not. Some Christian men actually end up scared of the company of women. I want to ask you, is that what Jesus wants for us? To go from lusting after women to being frightened to death of them? Or does he want us, want to enable us to relate to women as he did with respect and honor and dignity? Um, I remember reading in the past, uh, that there was one school of Pharisees who earned the nickname the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. Why? Because they tried to keep themselves right in this area by wearing a blindfold when they walked around in the streets so they would never see a woman uh, and uh, be caused to stumble. And of course, they kept bumping into lampposts and therefore were the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. Um, whenever we try to deal with lust, only using external measures, we're still in the end thinking like Pharisees. And so Dallas Willard suggests another way of reading the words of Jesus. I actually think the two are maybe complementary. It's good to take drastic action, but we reach a point where we realize that has limits. And so Dallas Willard suggests Jesus is using humor and sarcasm to show the logical endpoint if we try to tackle lust as an external problem. We're going to have to keep chopping off body parts. And this is a very vivid image, as he says, as Dallas Willard says, until we roll into heaven a mutilated stump. Right? That's the end point. If you keep trying to tackle these things only on the outside. And so I want to suggest these provocative words of Jesus lead us to the conclusion that we need something deeper. We need our hearts to be changed. And so I want to spend the rest of our time asking, what do we do to deal with the heart? If, if we find Jesus' words challenging, if we've started trying to take drastic action externally to put guards in place and keep away from danger, but we realize that we need something deeper, what do we do? Uh, and I guess I want to look at the wider um, gospel of the New Testament to help us answer that question. And I want to suggest three things that we can do to deal with lust at a heart level. And the first one is this, is that we need to cultivate a culture of honesty because sexual sin thrives in the dark. It thrives in, in the shadows and in secret. Um, 
And in a culture that tries to manage sexual sin through shame, everyone keeps these things hidden. You don't want to bring them into the light because you're going to come under shame. And so when you first feel tempted, you don't tell anybody. And when you start playing with that temptation a little bit and letting it linger, you don't tell anybody. And when you take your first small steps towards acting on it, you don't tell anybody. And a thousand small steps later, you can be deeply entangled and enslaved by all kinds of things. Um, I've been grieved, like I know many of you have, by stories of scandal and abuse that have happened in every corner of the church around the world, and some in very recent weeks. Um, and I think the big mistake is to say that's just a few bad apples, um, that that kind of explains what has happened. Um, these things happen in a culture of shame and secrecy where people don't talk about these things. Um, and I, I know some of us get uncomfortable here and maybe don't like this idea of talking about these things. Maybe you're not comfortable. We're talking about it uh, in church this morning. Um, I'm not saying that we should spill our guts to everyone, that we should tell all our secrets to everybody uh, we meet in the church. But I do want to say this sort of quite directly. Um, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you are young or old or somewhere in between, you need to have at least one person in your life that you can talk to about these things. You need to have at least one person. Um, and we need to be able to ask very direct questions of each other. And maybe I want to suggest taking last week and this week together, here are two really good questions to ask each other regularly. Um, one is there any place in your life and your heart right now where contempt is getting a foothold? Two, is there any place in your life right now in your heart where lust is getting a foothold? Because these are things we need to talk about early before they get uh, deeply enmeshed in our lives. Um, so there's two good questions to ask. And by the way, if you're thinking, I don't need that, you're thinking it's good JM saying that for the young people, or it's good that he's saying that for uh, those people. Um, maybe some of us are thinking this is not an area of struggle or temptation for me. And all I want to say about that is just one verse from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. It says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. None of us are immune to the dangers here. Um, and so I want to say to you, uh, you're free to ask me these questions. Uh, all of us need to be inviting others to come uh, and ask us these things. We need a culture of honesty uh, that talks about these things together. Secondly, uh, preach the gospel of forgiveness. Uh, when I say preach, um, I don't just mean people like me uh, standing at a pulpit and preaching. I mean speak the gospel of forgiveness to each other within our friendships, within our community, uh, within our churches. Um, it's one of the great privileges of Christian friendship when your friend trusts you enough to confess their failure and their struggle. Speak the good news of God's forgiveness to them. Speak it with authority and the authority of the cross of Jesus and the blood of Christ. Um, and so I want to encourage you to do that for each other. Uh, but let's say it out loud this morning. Um, we want to say this morning, whatever the nature of your sins in this area. There is forgiveness to be found in Jesus this morning. 
if you sinned in dramatic ways in your actions or if you sinned in the secret place of your heart and your imagination. Um, if you feel this morning like your sins in this area are enormous or if you feel like they're quite small, it doesn't matter. They need to be brought to Jesus. Um, if you've sinned in ways that you know are common to others around you, everybody struggles with these things. Or if you feel that your sin is somehow different or abnormal or perverse or shameful in a particular way, there is forgiveness this morning to be found in Jesus. If you're carrying shame for something you did a long time ago and you can't shake off that shame, if you're ashamed of things you did this week, there is forgiveness to be found in Jesus. If you made one big terrible mistake, or if you've been stuck in repetitive habits, there's forgiveness to be found in Jesus. And so we want to say, however deep and dark and serious you think your sin is, it is wildly outdone by the grace of God in Jesus. Jesus has taken our sin. He has taken our shame. And so one of my favorite verses in Romans 5, verse 20, says, wherever sin abounds, Grace abounds much more. It's wildly outdone by the grace of God in Jesus. And so if you feel convicted of adultery this morning by the blunt words of Jesus, um, I want to encourage you, don't go around just feeling bad and ashamed with your head down. That's where the enemy wants to keep you. That's where the accuser wants to keep you. I want to encourage you to lift up your head and look to Jesus. Like we said last week, at first, um, Jesus is our accuser and our heart is our defender, but then our heart becomes our accuser and Jesus is our defender. And I want to encourage you uh, to lift up your head and look to Jesus and get off the mat and get out of the doghouse of shame and get back in the race and get back in the fight because we need you and the world needs you. Um, and so let's say to each other often and loudly, um, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and he is just and he will forgive us our sins. And not just that, he will also purify us from all unrighteousness. And that's the third thing, is we need to preach a gospel of heart transformation. And um, once again, I want to say, and we've been saying it a lot of these weeks, don't stop with a half gospel. Uh, don't stop with just saying we've been honest with each other and that's good, and we, we know that we're forgiven and that's good, which can leave us still entangled by lust in our lives. But we want to say again, the risen Jesus is with you right now by his Spirit, and he is ready to fight for you, to make available to you all the resources of heaven so that lust can be rooted out of your heart. He wants to give you a new heart and new desires and new appetites. This is the righteousness greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees. The verse I love in, in Romans 8 that says, what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by our sinful nature, God did by sending his son. And it goes on to talk about how we now live not according to the sinful nature, but, a, but by the Spirit, and how we have our minds set on what the Spirit desires. See, our desires get changed as Jesus and his Spirit, by His Spirit, 
works in us. And it goes on to say in Romans 8, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. And he will also give life to your mortal body. He changes our hearts. He changes our minds. He changes our desires. Um, and so to keep hitting you over the head with this quotation, he's going to make us into creatures that can obey this command. He can make us into people who love purity, who love faithfulness, um, who hate lust uh, and have cast it out of our lives as the Spirit works in us. So let's cultivate a culture of honesty. Let's preach to each other a gospel of forgiveness. Let's also preach to each other a gospel of heart transformation. Um, I want to finish here. Um, just with something very simple. Um, I, want, I want to ask you to imagine something with me. And all I'm doing here is taking uh, a story from John's gospel and applying it to us. If you want to, you can close your eyes uh, as we do this, or you can keep them open. But I want you to imagine that we're gathered in the Sandal Center. I know that's hard to imagine at the minute, but we're, we're all gathered here and the room is packed. And I want you to imagine that you're in the center of the room and everyone else is in a circle around you. And then I want you to imagine that the very worst of your sexual sins are read out one by one. Not only the worst things that you've done, but the worst things that you've thought and imagined and played on that projector in your own mind. And it's all there for everyone to hear. Um, and everyone in the room is looking at you. But then, Jesus is also there. And now, everyone is watching him to see what he's going to say or do. And for a moment, he's quiet. And he stoops down and he seems to be writing something with his finger on the carpet. And no one knows what he's writing and they'll debate it and speculate about it later. But then he stands up and he looks around and he seems to look each person in the room in the eyes one by one. And he says, let the one who is without sin throw the first stone. And one by one, each person drops their eyes to the floor. And one by one, your brothers and sisters move towards you and they stand beside you. And then they kneel with you on the floor until the only one left standing is Jesus. And everyone looks at Jesus again. He is the righteous one. He's the only one in the room who can condemn you. And Jesus holds out his hands, which still bear the mark of the nails. And he says, neither do I condemn you. And then... He tells all of us to get up off the floor and he tells all of us to lift up our heads and he says, now go and sin no more. And let's pray together and then we're going we're gonna to sing uh, to finish our service. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray a few very simple prayers for us this morning. Um, I want to pray for those of us who have not been taking these things seriously in our lives and who have been playing with them 
as if they are something light or trivial. And Father, I want to pray if that's where we are this morning, that we would hear the thunder in the words of Jesus. That it really matters whenever we use another human being for our gratification. And I want to pray that we would feel uh, the weight of that. I want to pray that in your love for us, you would bring us to a place of real conviction and repentance. Father, I want to pray for those of us who are carrying a lot of shame and guilt in this area. Father, I want to pray, would you help us this morning to believe the gospel? That Jesus has taken our sin and has taken our shame and he has done enough. And there is now no condemnation for those who are in you. I want to pray you'd help us to hear, uh, or to, to, to hear Jesus speaking to our hearts this morning and telling us to lift up our heads. That those who look to you are never covered with shame. Father, I want to pray uh, for those of us this morning who are struggling to get free of sin that entangles us and keeps dragging us down. And Father, I want to pray. Uh, we, we know that we can't win that fight by ourselves, and we know that the law by itself is not enough. We want to pray, come, Lord Jesus, by your Spirit. Would you break the power of these sins in our lives? Would you set us free? Would you root out these desires that keep leading us astray? Would you give us new desires and new appetites? Would you make us people who love purity and love faithfulness? Would you change our habits and our patterns of living in the world and the way that we look as we go about our lives? Father, we in the church, we desperately need... Um, a revolution in this area. Um, we don't want to be Pharisees who just go around condemning other people and shaming them. But we want to be people who run in the way of your commands because our hearts have been changed. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Um, let us be people who not only know that we're forgiven, but also experience you renewing our hearts day by day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.